Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of this show know, each and every week, a guest and I uh, pursue uh, the depth of understanding available to us in the weekly Torah reading known in Hebrew as the Parasha. This week in synagogues throughout the world, a new book of the Torah the third book of the five books will be read from. In Hebrew, that is known as Vayikra. In English, it's known as Leviticus. The first parasha is rather lengthy, beginning in Leviticus 1 and running through the end of Leviticus 5. Let me give you an overview of it before we chat with our guest. Um, in this book, uh, God calls Vayikra, that's what the word comes from, to Moses from the tent of meeting and communicates to Moses the laws of the kor korbanot, the laws of the animal and meal offerings brought in the sanctuary. It enumerates what these korbanot sacrifices are. There is the ascending offering known as the olah that is wholly raised to God by the fire atop the altar. Five varieties of mincha, meal offerings, which are prepared with fine flour, olive oil, and frankincense. We then have the shlemim, the peace offering whose meat was eaten by one bringing the offering after parts are burned on the altar and parts are given to the Kohanim, the priests. The different types of sin offering, chatat, brought to atone for transgressions committed erroneously by the high priest, the entire community, the king of Israel, or the ordinary Israelite. And lastly, the Torah portion speaks to us of the guilt offering, the asham, brought by one who has misappropriated property of the sanctuary, who is in doubt as to whether that person transgressed a divine prohibition, or who has committed a betrayal against God by swearing falsely to defraud another. It is the Torah portion that introduces us to what is known as Israelite religion, the religion that is primarily centered around the life of the sacrificial cult and the duties of the priesthood, and introduces us to the notion of ritual purity and ritual impurity. With me this morning, is Rabbi Elise Goldstein, Rabbi of the City Shul in Toronto. Rabbi Goldstein has a very distinguished rabbinic career. She began her rabbinic career at Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto, and then she served as Rabbi of Temple Beth David of Canton, Massachusetts, before returning to Canada. She founded the Kolel, 
the Adult Center for Jewish Learning, an institute that was based on the Lehr House in Germany, offering Jewish studies to adults in classes, lectures, retreats, and in-depth seminars. Following her retirement as director of the Kollel, she founded a brand new congregation affiliated with the reform movement in downtown Toronto. Rabbi Goldstein is the author of four books, Revision Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens, The Women's Torah Commentary, A Women's Haftarah Commentary, and New Jewish Feminism, Probing the Past and Forging the Future. One could go on to list the awards as well as the honors that Rabbi Goldstein has received, but suffice it to say Rabbi Goldstein is one of the preeminent rabbis of her generation, and it's a pleasure to welcome her back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Gordon. I think my introduction was longer than the book of Leviticus. Well... <laughs> Uh, perhaps it's more worthy uh, than the book of Leviticus. Um, as I indicated in the introduction, this uh, book introduces us to what the scholar Yechezkel Kaufman calls Israelite religion. And so why don't we begin by you perhaps sharing uh, with the listeners this notion of religion based on sacrifice. What was that all about? So. It seems to me that in the days of the Torah or the Bible, um, all ancient peoples felt a need to placate their gods with some kind of offering. And there's no question in my mind that the book of Leviticus shows us that we also had those feelings, right? That we felt that our God wanted the sweet, savory spice of burning meat or something like that. Um, and uh, that was pleased, that our God was pleased by those by those smells. But, you know, as, as the Jewish people um, became um, more sure of itself and ready and, in fact, anxious to differentiate themselves from the societies around them, um, and one of the ways we differentiated ourselves from the societies around us in terms of sacrifice was in rejecting human sacrifice, for example. Um, we, I think we began to understand that uh, that's, a, that's a very... Um, can I say immature notion of God that God needs us to to kill and sacrifice and burn animals to show God how much we care and you know I want to point out that the Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban which comes from the root lekarev to to draw close and I think that's what we were going for I think in the days of the Bible we were going for a way to show God that we desired to come close to God. And since everybody so, around us did that by offering animals, we did that too. So one of the uh, corollaries of what you're suggesting is that the destruction of the temple, uh, both the first time in 586 and the second time in 70, um, gave Rashut, gave permission for the Israelites to look at a different means of coming closer to God. Um, was that intentional? Was it accidental? Um, were we just lucky 
that the temple was destroyed. Um, no, I, I know that there. I think we felt it was catastrophic when the temple was destroyed, and I think we looked around and said, "Oh, oh, now what do we do?" Because the only way we know how to be close to God is by offering these animal sacrifices. But uh, you know, in the end, first of all, we had this problem. This problem was there's only one place you're allowed to offer those sacrifices, and that's the temple. We never decentralized the uh, sacrificial cult, right? We never said, right. you can just do it in your backyard. Now, that, I think, became good news for us, because when the temple was destroyed, we were able to say, hmm, not only is the temple destroyed, but the actual place, the only acceptable and approved location for these sacrifices has also been destroyed. We have two choices. We take the sacrifices with us and do, a, do them in our backyards, or we let go of this notion that God actually, this is the way God wants us to draw close. And I think it was the brilliance of the rabbis of the second century, for example, first century, second century. It was the brilliance of the rabbis to say, mm, I think we're going to go with option B. I think we're going to go with, a, you're not taking the sacrifices with you and, and doing them in your backyard. We're going to go with the, it's time to move on. So in moving on, and with uh, this fortuitous destruction of the temple, um, though I understand tradition thinks of it as catastrophic, it was fortuitous in allowing the descendants of the rabbis to move forward with a new uh, understanding of how to come close to the deity. One of the primary dynamics of the book of Leviticus was establishing what the book calls purity and impurity uh, for ritual. And it spends, as I indicated in the beginning, a great deal of time indicating what kind of sacrifices one must make yeah. if you were in fact made impure. And for the priesthood in particular, there was a, a pantheon of uh, opportunities that could uh, disqualify you by making you uh, impure for ritual right. purposes. Yeah. And, and it's used throughout the book of Leviticus, these terms, pure and impure. What happens to that conceptual design once we move away from sacrifices? Well, these are, these are excellent questions. And you know, I'm very fascinated by the book of Leviticus because of that, because of its insistence on the boundaries between pure and impure. Because I do think we've lost, in our modern religion, we've lost a sense of boundaries. Everything is okay. Everything is appropriate. Everything is acceptable. Um, and it seems to me that we, there's a lesson in the in this preoccupation with purity and impurity that that would still be helpful for us to analyze, which is one reason why I love teaching and studying the book of Leviticus, because it brings up these questions. Is anything impure for us? Is anything pure? Is anything holy? Is anything taboo? You know, the book of Leviticus has all the taboos in it, all the sexual taboos, all the eating taboos. There's a lot of, like, it is the book of taboos. And, and taboos are very unpopular. Now, when I say the word taboo, by the way, Listeners might even say, well, of course, you know, we don't want any taboos. We don't want any negative, negative feelings or negative judgments against things. That's not what a taboo is. 
sociologically speaking, or let me say anthropologically speaking, taboo is something that is so holy that you don't touch it. You don't sit with it. You don't go into its tent. You don't go near it. You just, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like conductivity, you know, it's like an electric charge. So for example, not only were menstruating women taboo in the sense of that you don't touch them because they they have this incredible conductivity going on between them and, and create creativity and productivity, but the tent itself, you like the tent of meeting, you can't touch it. There's certain tents you couldn't go in. There's certain times you couldn't go into the tent, right? The priests, you don't just hang out with the priests and like, they don't get to wear whatever they want and do whatever they want. They'd have a really big problem in COVID where they only have to be dressed from the waist up, right? Um, they, so these, in, these, in, all, these in, things, all these things which are taboo actually have a sense of super holiness to them. And that's something I want to talk about in the 21st century. Is there anything in our lives that is so important, so precious, so holy that we don't mess around with it? Well, that's a wonderful reformulation of what it means to be pure and impure. Um, And I guess one could um, search deeply in uh, the tradition to see whether the exegesis is based on a more modern understanding or, in fact, um, is found with some basis in the tradition. Um, It is helpful to say that taboo means something is so holy we stay away from it. Mm But how did it therefore become um, part of common parlance that something that's taboo we stay away from, but is certainly not holy? Yeah, no, I right. I, so yeah. you indicated that, of course, the Book of Leviticus is uh, ripe with all the uh, questions of what constitutes appropriate and acceptable sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, both between men and women and between people of uh, the same identified sex. Um, There, are we suggesting the text thought that the prohibitions meant that the behaviors were more holy? No, the different words are used, though. As you ah, know. so what words are used there? Abomination is used there, which we have to understand also in its Levitical context. Creepy crawly shrimp are also an abomination, right? They're, they're, right. The, the text is trying to keep us focused on um, you are what you eat. You are the sex that you have. You are... Uh, you know, you we walk in this world with more than just ourselves, right? So I could go into another whole long conversation about what I think of the the homosexual uh, taboos and what the word abomination means there, and what the Torah was really trying to get us to watch and be careful about. For me, it's about a power imbalance. It's a master slave issue. There's a lot of historical issues around. By the way, only male homosexuality is mentioned in Leviticus, not female. Correct. Um, and what was the Torah trying to get at in terms of having holy um, and uh, and uh, equal relationships, partnerships, that sex was for partnership, not for domination? That's another whole conversation. I'd love to have it because I think, by the way, it's a very important feminist conversation as well. Um, well, it's, yeah. a, it's an important 
conversation to have in light of where we began, and that is how does one use uh, faith and behaviors based in faith to bring one closer to the deity as opposed to keeping one far from the deity? Right. Well, that, that's uh, the whole question of Leviticus and Korban, right? The opening, right. Oh, the opening words of Ayikra, God called to Moses and said. So all the traditional commentaries say, why does it have to say first God called and then God said? Why doesn't it just say God said? And all the, there's such beautiful midrashim and commentaries about the fact that, um, you know, the golden calf has just happened. And God and the people are estranged as a result of the golden calf. And we have to be called back in. We have to be invited back in to be in relationship. And that's what happens between Moses and God in the beginning of Leviticus. God calls to Moses as if to say, listen, I'm not still mad about the golden calf. Come and talk to me. Don't hide. Don't be afraid of me. We're still in relationship, right? Um, and and uh, so it seems to me that what Leviticus is trying to get us to think about um, is the possibility that we are still in relationship with God, even though we're not using the same modalities anymore, which is animal sacrifice. So what modalities do we choose to show that we are in relationship? And listen, we're also always experiencing estrangement ourselves from God, from religion, from Judaism, from each other, especially during COVID, right? God, oh, Rashi, the famous commentary on, on the Torah, uh, medieval French commentator says, for that word, Vayikra, God always calls us and asks us to come out of our estrangement and come close right? We just have to feel that we're invited in. We have to be open to being invited by God to be in relationship. So it's a really interesting question that Leviticus poses to us. Does God need something from us in order to feel that we are drawing close or are we constantly being invited in, but we don't hear that invitation? Well, that's the interesting dynamic, namely the call is made but do we? Does the call resonate with us? Um, do we have to have some sort of uh, mechanism for hearing? Well, that's what the, that's what our ancestors had when they right. when they when they sacrificed those animals. They felt that they had a mechanism for for being in that relationship, for being called, and for answering the call, as it were. And you know our. Everything now is is very optional. It's very um, you know voluntary. So we're be, if we're being called all the time, but we're not expected to, to to answer the call in any specific or physical way. How do we answer that call? But but before we get to the voluntary nature of response, there's an intermediate step that the rabbis uh, offered in. in um, in their searching for a way to uh, understand how they could keep the Jewish people uh, karov, close to God, mm -hmm. after the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. And they uh, instituted um, a, an entire understanding of what prayer would be, which was pretty minimal during the temple sacrificial time. So what happened to prayer right well which was which was certainly not uh, optional the way the rabbis saw it right the rabbis saw prayer as obligatory in the same way that the torah had seen 
sacrifices as obligatory. They even uh, copied the three-time-a-day right. uh, dynamic. So what happens, as you understand it, to this notion of prayer? Well, see, I, I, I wish that liberal Jews would take that obligation to pray seriously. If you don't feel obligated to pray, at least feel an obligation to be in the same space so the people who do feel the obligation to pray have a community to pray with, right? So, for example, in the reform movement, I'm one who has always required a minion of 10 to say Kaddish, a quorum of 10 people, to 10 Jews, to say the mourner's prayer. There's lots of reform rabbis who do away with that. But that does away with our obligation to be there for each other. So I think the obligations of bringing the korbanot, of bringing the sacrifices, led to the rabbinic notion of the obligation to pray, which should lead to our obligation right now to each other, to be there, to be present. Listen, to make a sacrifice is to be present. Even in the days of the Torah, you had to be present. You had to be there to do it. You had to put a little effort into it. Um, and I think we're missing that, especially in the liberal community where everything is is voluntary. We, we need an obligation to show up for each other. So that, for me, is the 21st century equivalent of bringing a korban. So is it possible in your reformulation that the um, notion of purity and impurity, which has somewhat fallen by the wayside, has led to the notion of voluntary behavior? Have we not um, failed to replace? Yeah, so purity and impurity as concepts in Torah led to particular behaviors. If you were deemed impure, you weren't deemed impure yeah. forever. There was a way to um, purify yourself. Yeah. Sometimes with the priesthood, but sometimes with your own behavior and your own sacrifice mm-hmm. that you brought to the synagogue. Once mm-hmm. we take away those boundaries that you spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. once we take away those definitions and we no longer feel boundaries in our behavior, Mm -hmm. does that lead us, therefore, to say there are no obligations, whether they're pure or impurity or prayer, or we have no obligation to come close to the deity or find out what closeness means? It's a very hard question because, as you know, uh, these are unpopular notions, and everyone is very independent right now and very... uh, we have an obligation to be kind, you know, and to and to have a moral society and to be ethical. We don't have any obligation to be a certain religion or to go to a certain synagogue. That would that would not fly in the 21st century, and I, I don't think it should. Right? I think our obligation is to find a way to be moral, ethical people. And if religion helps give us a container or a modus operandi to do that, then, then yes, we are obligated to find a way to make, this, to make this work. And religion should be one way that helps us make this work. But it's never going to become an obligatory system. No, I can't ever see So that. as a rabbi who now serves a congregation in a large metropolitan area, what do you teach to your congregants 
about the difference between uh, Jewish moral behavior and non-Jewish moral behavior. And I don't mean Christian or Muslim, but the um, opportunity to be a humanist rather than a deist without um, limiting the definition of deist to one definition of deity. If you understand what I'm suggesting, what do you teach people? Why should I be Jewish? Why should I be Christian? I can right. do good deeds without that. Right. I I would say that there is no obligation to be a specific uh, religious identity, but I would say the following. I would say that, you know, when people say I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, I have no idea what they mean by that. Right. Because how do you manifest your spirituality? I know how I manifest my religiosity. Right. I light Sabbath candles. I eat a certain way. I dress a certain way. I give charity at very cyclical, predictable moments. Right. Not just when I feel like it, but on the holiday I give, you know, for that holiday. Um, so I tell people, you know what? Think of Judaism as a container to pour your un define spirituality into and help define it, right? I think spirituality is so amorphous. Yes, I feel spiritual when I see a sunset or I'm at the Grand Canyon also, but how do I feel spiritual while I'm driving? So to me, Judaism is a way for me to manifest that spirituality and how I speak and how I dress and how I, and how I eat and how I relate to people and how I try and make this world a better place how I mark time, how I sanctify a place, right? So to me, religion, whatever religion it is, and I don't think we have the only truth, religion is the is the uh, container into which we pour that amorphous desire to 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 be to be a spiritual person and to be a transformative person, a person who changes things in the world, um, and gives us sort of like a structure. Uh, and, and a way to do that, you know, uh, we'll just give you a very quick example. We all say we love our family, right? And we want to spend more time with our family. But putting that into the structure of a Friday night dinner, a Sabbath dinner where I light candles and make a, and make blessings over my children, week in, week out, doesn't matter the weather, doesn't matter the stress level, doesn't matter the time, doesn't matter the place, right? Week in and week out, Every week, Friday night is family time, and it's sacred. I never say to my kids, oh, you know what? This Friday night, we're not going to have Shabbat together because I'd rather go to the symphony or I'd rather go shopping or I need to do the laundry. It's sacred time. Having that structure means when I say the words, oh, family is very important to me. Family time is very, I want to know, how do you manifest that in the world? Well, Judaism gives me, and I can say an obligation, if you will, uh, a manifested way to do that every Friday night, right? So I, you know, I, I say my home is a very important place. It's where I want to speak kindly and do gently. Well, I have a mezuzah on my door. Every time I walk in, it's a physical reminder to me of everything, although my goals for my house. And I, and I, and I, it makes it, it makes it more real than just saying, oh, I really want my house to be a very kind and gentle place. If I have a mezuzah on my door, I can remind myself every single solitary time I come in and go out, watch your mouth because there's the Torah's up on your door there. And, and you know. So, so we may not use the word obligation anymore, but certainly as you discuss it and share it with our listeners, the notion of behavior gives structure 
to our spirituality. Yeah. And the notion of that structure in the context of a 2,000-year-old tradition Which gives still structure. Um, and even though we may uh, massage some of those structures uh, with regard to the role of women and with regard to the role of Hebrew, there's a continuity that allows there to be meaning mm -hmm. to those behaviors that you identify. Yeah. Yes? Yes, 100%. So I think we've only just begun to unpack the meaning of Leviticus and haven't even addressed um, why we should be reading this antiquated <laughs> uh, text in the Torah. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Elise Goldstein of the City Shul of Toronto, for helping us dig deeper into the book of Leviticus and this week's Torah portion. You can find a recording of this morning's conversation on iTunes or the chri.ca website for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day. Shalom.